All right, kids ages three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Miss Gilmartin will take you all down there. She's in the back. The rest of you, uh, if, if you have a Bible, if you could open it to the book of Isaiah. That's in the Old Testament. It's like this huge prophetic book in the Old Testament. We're in chapter 55. Um, it's right about... Uh, just slightly past halfway through your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Uh, your, your bulletin, your order of worship has the text for you. If you don't own a Bible, there's a bunch on the back table and more under it in case we run out. But we want you to take one of those. Uh, that is our gift to you. Make sure you grab one on your way out. Or, or if you're really brave, you can go do it right now uh, if you want to. But It's going to be good for you to have it in front of you, though. Well, like, like I said before, my name is Rick. I'm the, I'm the pastor here um, at Holy Cross. This is Friendship Sunday, which is a big day for us. We're glad you could come and visit with us and be here with us. Um, let, me, let me move us into this time. So I've been in the valley now, uh, if you count college, for about 20 years. And here's what I know about the valley. Everybody has a church, and almost no one has actually been in church. What I mean by that is, is that there are a lot of people in this area, because it's, it's kind of part of the Bible Belt, believe that they are Christians simply because they're American and not Muslim, right? They're American and not Buddhist. They're, they're uh, you know, mainly it's American. Like, for many, the idea that being Christian is about kind of adhering to a certain kind of morality, like traditional morality, or, or it's about uh, kind of loving people. And, and be, because of that, that in this area, in the air that we breathe in this area, that's just kind of normative. To be a Christian is to be kind of either loving or, or really moral, right? Uh, unfortunately, that's false. So for many, uh, the obst- in, in our area, the obstacle to becoming a Christian is the assumption that you already are one. It's a huge obstacle. Why do I even need to listen? Uh, some of you are probably here in that position. And for other of us, though, that's not the case, right? For some, Christianity has been so confused, either by uh, TV preachers um, who are trying to get their money, or, uh, or moralistic preachers telling them to get their lives together, or just the judgy eyes of people who claim to be Christians. That, that they don't want any part of it. And frankly, if that's you here, I don't blame you. I don't either, if that's what it means. The problem is that's not Christianity. And so some of us are in the position of having that obstacle of believing we already are a Christian. Others of us are here, and we have the obstacle of not wanting anything to do with it because of that's our assumption. Uh, to both, I say I'm glad you're here because my hope is that today you're going to hear something you didn't expect. So we're, this morning we're coming uh, to Isaiah chapter 55. Our habit here is to stand when that word is read. So if you'd stand with me. We'll be reading Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 to 7. Let me remind us before we read this. This, this is God's word to us. I know not everyone in this room believes that. But as Christians we believe this is God's word. This is not something that we've kind of chosen for ourselves. It's a word that lays claim on us. And so as we come, we want to hear it in that way. And so I'd invite you to do the same. This is God's word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
For behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that, does, that you did not know, or did not know you, shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is God's word given so that we could flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, over this time, we just ask your blessing. Would you, would you open our hearts? Whether we've been here since the beginning of this church, we've been in church all our lives, or whether this is our first Sunday, would you open our hearts to hear from you and to, to, uh, to understand what you have for us? Would you open uh, our minds to be able to get the gospel? Would By your, by your spirit, Lord, would you, um, would you give us joy in this message this morning? Not because of any confidence in ourselves, but all because of your greatness, your goodness, and your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So one of the things that uh, is one of my pet peeves, and thankfully I think they're going out of favor, but they're still around, um, are those little podium boxes when you go into like restaurants that advertise for you a free vacation. One of the reasons I hate them is because my kids always want to fill out the forms and you have to stop them because they don't understand what's coming. Um, I hate them because of, because of that, uh, but, but also because of the reality that it's, it's false advertisement, right? Because, you know, my, my children are still learning this. I have four kids. The oldest is now in sixth grade and the youngest is uh, in second grade. Um, so uh, they're still learning the truism that there's no such thing as a free lunch, Right? We learned that, didn't we? You don't get something for nothing. There's always an angle. This is the way we learn to understand the world. Frankly, it's the way that most of us approach our understanding of God, right? Because all of the world religions, for the most part, are formed around the idea of quid pro quo. Spirituality as economics. I do this, God does this. I do this for him, he does this for me. It's an economic relationship. But here's the main difference between that and authentic Christianity. Biblical authentic Christianity actually teaches something for nothing. It teaches you that, there's, that you can have something for nothing. Because it's based on grace and not work. It's based on promise and not performance. It's based on dependence, not determination. So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we approach this text. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. Look, if you're new to Presbyterianism, the way that Presbyterians engage in a sermon is by writing notes. We don't say amen, right? Uh, though I would love it if you did. The only person this church ever does is Carlton, and I love him for it, right? And thankfully, he sits close enough I can hear it. But, but you'll notice if, the, if you're new to church or you're new to like Presbyterian church, he's like, hey, man, nobody's really in. They seem really bored. No, it's not that. What you'll notice is their heads will be down. They'll be doing this. That's the same as like going... Uh, Preach, you know, it's the same as someone saying preach as them writing down. So uh, if that's helpful to you, great. If not, and you want to do a hoo-de-hoo from the back, I'm cool with that too. All right? Anyway, that outline's in your bulletin. But here's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at a call to fulfillment. We're going to look at a call to flourishing and then a call to forgiveness. So a call to fulfillment, a call to flourishing, and a call to forgiveness. And what we're going to see is this. That the Christian gospel is really about the fact that our gain comes at his cost. That's simple. Our gain comes at his cost. Okay? 
So let's dig into that call to fulfillment. Look down at verse 1. So um, for those of you not familiar with the book of Isaiah, which is probably a lot of you in here, uh, the, the Isaiah was a dude who lived a long time ago, 8th century B.C., all right? Um, and he was what's known as a prophet. Now, we tend to think of prophets as fortune tellers, right? That we expect them to kind of be constantly in a, tra- a trance or somehow looking slightly high. But that's not what they were in the Old Testament. Biblical prophets actually functioned as, as those who were there to call people back into relationship with God. They're, they're, they're calling them to faithfulness to their promises uh, rather than telling the future. And this is really important as we, as we read and study this, right? Isaiah is calling people to faithfulness, but that faithfulness looks a lot different than we probably expect. Okay? So let's start there in verse 1. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. All right? Now stop there. Here's what I want to point out about this. First are these two categories of people. Those that thirst and those without money. Now, I'm not entirely certain how thirsty you've been here in, in this room, whether, whether you've ever actually engaged in honest thirst. And I don't mean just like, man, I really feel like a latte. I mean like real thirst. Like these folks lived in a desert. They knew what thirst was. Like that scratchiness in your throat when you swallow and it's sharp and you can't, you, you're desperate, Right? Then there's the no money part. Some of, us can, some of us here can really relate to that, at least to a point. Because not having any money, uh, not having the ability to purchase anything meant you were going to go without food. So there are people that thirst and people that hunger. And so what's similar in both of these is that both of these categories of people are those who are desperate. They're desperate. They're in desperation. They know that they are in need. Now, I say this, and some of us are already thinking, like, exactly. Like, that's what I think religion's about. It's about needy people needing a crutch. You're right. That's exactly what it is. The kind of offensive thing is the Bible says that we're all like that, whether we realize it or not. We're kind of all there. We're all weak. We're all needy. We're all crippled. And, and I know that that's offensive to some of us, so please don't check out. I, I need you to stick with me. Uh, but, I need, you know, hear me out. All of us. All of us feel this sort of emptiness, right? This kind of like hole that we can't seem to fill, a longing for something that will make things right for us. That's why we spend so much time on social media looking for... What are we looking for? What are we looking for? That's why some of us are so driven at work, hoping for that next promotion. Why some of us work so hard to control our environments, make sure everything lines up exactly as it's supposed to. So why some of us move from substance to substance or partner to partner, just trying to get that next little bit, trying to find whatever it is that we think we need. We are a people as a whole, even if we hide it well, who are driven mad by thirst. Now the ironic thing is that here God is telling those of us who thirst, those of us who are needy, to come to him. Now think about that, because that's not generally how we feel uh, God is going to act, right? Because we have this national axiom for God, right? That God helps those who help themselves, right? I don't know if you knew this, that's actually not in the Bible. I don't know what that is. I don't know who came up with that, but that's not, that's not in the Bible at all. It's, it's the notion uh, that God will help you if you get your act together, Right? The idea that God would call to the needy, to the thirsty, to those trying but failing to find satisfaction is strange to our ears. 
But, but here it is. It's right here. But let's continue there looking at spending on nothing. Look at verse 2. He says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Okay, stop there. So remember I said a second ago that um, money, success, status, uh, Facebook likes, uh, sexual conquests, the forgetfulness of drunkenness, all of those things, Isaiah just told us that those things cannot satisfy us. Did you hear that? Now, my guess is that some of us are probably thinking, well, that may be true for you, Rick. Uh, I don't really have an issue, right? I don't have an issue. I just need a little more money. I don't have an issue. I just need another promotion. I don't, I don't have an issue. I just need... I get it. I get it. But listen for a second. Because you see, the Bible actually tells us why we have that thirst. And it isn't what you think. It isn't because we don't have enough of whatever it is we think we need. The Bible teaches us that we were created for God, not just by God. Right? I think if, if some of us have a, a generalized idea of some kind of theism, that we kind of think maybe there's a God, we, we kind of get the idea, okay, we're created by God. We're not sure how that works, but sure, I get, but for Him, we're actually created for Him. And that's a huge difference. Because the scriptures teach us that we're created for a dependent relationship with Him. But in time, humanity as a whole became to, came to believe a lie. And I say as a whole because I want to make sure that we're clear. This is an all of us problem. And that lie is simply this, that God can't be trusted, that he is out to get us, that he is holding us back, that there is something about him that we cannot depend on. So we have to and should depend on ourselves. And so we turn from him and betrayed him. So think with me. Let's use the metaphor that's already been used. You and I need water, right? We're made for hydration, okay? If we decide, you know, I know I'm really dependent on that water, but instead I'm going to quench my thirst with sand, how well is that going to work? Like, it doesn't work, because you were designed for water. Like, the bold claim of the Bible is that we were made for God. We were made for a relationship with God. But now we are stuck looking for that thing that we were made to get from God in anything and anyone else. It's now ground into our very nature. Some of you still don't believe me, and that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that. But, so because of that, let me let uh, someone who's not a Christian explain it. It's, uh, it's NFL playoff time. I don't know if you knew that. Some of you hate sports. But um, the playoffs are today. It's the NFC and AFC championship game today. The odds-on favorite to win the Super Bowl this year is the New England Patriots. They have this quarterback. Maybe you've heard of him. His name's Tom Brady. Okay? Um, let me tell you a little bit about Tom. Tom Brady is considered one of the top two or three quarterbacks of all time. This weekend, I listened to a lot of sports talk radio, and I heard multiple analysts who are NFL historians claim him to be in their top spot. Okay? So let's just give him that. Number one quarterback of all time. Dude is good-looking enough to be a model. He is in amazing shape. He has more money than most of us can imagine. And is married to a woman who, after having two children, still models for Victoria's Secret. And on top of that, he has 80,000 people every week chanting his name. Whatever you think will satisfy you, Tom Brady has it. But in 2005, when he only had three Super Bowl wins instead of four, in a 60 Minutes interview, he said this. These are Tom's words. 
Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that what it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? Did you hear that? Dude's got everything. He's like, this can't, this can't be everything. See, we assume we need a bigger promotion, a different job, a spouse, a different spouse, kids, different kids. We need something. Something is going to make us be fulfilled. The crazy thing is we never seem to challenge the assumption that those things could fill us in the first place. We say it's the wrong job, the wrong high, the wrong partner. I need more. I need more. But here, the Bible is calling us to challenge that assumption. Do you realize the Bible actually calls us to doubt? It's doing it right here. God wants you to doubt. What if you aren't really hungering and thirsting for that thing? I don't know what it is for you. What if, what if that's not what you're hungering for? What if it's God? See, the amazing thing is that God is here saying, if you thirst, if you're needy, come to me. Come to me and I will fill you. I will satisfy you. You're needy, but I'm willing to help you. That's the call to fulfillment. Now let's look at the call to flourishing. And by flourishing, that's a buzzword we use around here. What that really means is life, okay? True life. Look at verse 3. He says, incline your ear, which is listen, listen close, come to me, hear that you may live. Now, remember I said a few minutes ago that humanity uh, doubted the good heart of God, that we turned away from him, we betrayed him. That's very important that we understand it that way, because um, sin is not primarily breaking a rule. It's, fi- it's fundamentally breaking a heart. It's breaking a relationship. It's, it's wounding a person. It's betraying a person. Now, that betrayal, the Bible calls sin, right? Like I said, sin isn't fundamentally about breaking rules. It's about breaking a relationship. It's super important. And breaking that relationship with God results in three things, okay? The first is guilt. Now, most of us get that. That's what we assume, even though we may not like it. But listen, all all betrayals bring guilt. You know this because you've betrayed people, and you've been betrayed. And you know what that's like when you've been betrayed and how you feel about that person. They're guilty, They're going to get it. You know what I mean? Uh, So it brings guilt. But it also brings these two other things, corruption and alienation. So alienation from God results in that that lack of satisfaction we just talked about. It's the, I am am separate from him and seeking seeking that fulfillment anywhere. I'm not near to him. And I have this hunger in my soul that nothing in this world seems to satisfy. And I hate it. I don't know why. Corruption is that change in our nature. The idea that now we are, we are this by our nature. Like the scriptures teach us that, that we, we betray God because we're betrayers. That is ground into who we are. It's not just what we do. That, that, that lie that we once had to be convinced of, now we just simply assume it. No one ever had to teach us that maybe God's not trustworthy. Maybe we have to look out for number one, Right? And the Bible calls this state death. Remember what Rebecca read a little bit ago from Ephesians 2? You were dead in your trespasses 
and sins. That sounds a little dramatic, right? But think with me. If, if the Bible is right, that true life is being in relationship with God, being filled and satisfied for Him, looking to Him for your value, your worth, your identity, your understanding of reality, looking to Him for everything, then what would you call being the opposite of that? If that's life, the opposite of that would be death, right? Now here's how the New Testament speaks to this. Over and over and over again, we are given the fact that spiritual death, that that kind of death comes because of our state. Not because of what we do, but because of what we are. And that means we are stuck. That means we are in need of rescue. Okay, so check back in if you can, if you've checked out. Because this is an important difference between Christianity and everything else that's out there. This is an important difference between Christianity and what you may have heard was Christianity before this. Everything else gives you rules. Do this and things will go well for you. Follow these, this tenfold path. Follow these pillars. Follow these axioms, this self-help, and things will go well for you. Christianity doesn't give you rules. It gives you a rescuer. Because dead people don't need to be reformed. They need to be revived. They don't get off the table themselves. God is saying, if you want to live, you need to come to me. Now, here's where it gets confusing, uh, especially if the Bible's new to you, because then he begins moving into this David guy um, and, and this idea of a covenant. No one really knows what that is. So, uh, but remember, uh, as we're talking about this, remember that the Bible is a story. It's not, it's not primarily a book of rules, and it's not primarily a book of uh, giants, spiritual giants or heroes, because uh, if you take an honest look at most of the quote-unquote heroes in the Bible, their lives are train wrecks, uh, except for one. He goes by the name of Jesus. Um, But here's where this connects. When we turned away from God, he promised right there and then, right after we betrayed him, to make things right. That he would do it. Not that he would ask us to do it, but that he would do it to deal with our betrayal. Imagine that. God just got spit in his face. Just walked up and said, I don't want you, I don't need you, and you are evil. And he's like, man, I'm going to make this right with you. I'm going to take care of this. That promise is called a covenant in the Bible. A covenant is more relational than a contract, right? Because you can have contracts with people you don't know. But it's also more binding than just a simple relationship. And that promise, that covenant, begins to be worked out throughout the story of the Bible, first through a guy named Abraham, then through a guy by the name of Moses, and then this dude named David, who was a king. And God promises that the one who is going to deal with our sin, the way that he's going to actually deal with things, is through someone that's going to come through the line of David. Okay, And that brings us to the agent. Look down at verses 4 to 5. There's a ton here that I wish you could go into. We definitely don't have time. So scholars point out that, and if you did a close reading of this passage, what you'd notice is that a shift happens. Because before this, everything's in the plural. It's the you plural. Come to me, all of you. All of you come to me. And it shifts from the you plural into the singular. The singular, him. And the reason for that is that there are a ton of huge promises that are being made in this passage. And here's how God's going to accomplish them. Through a singular person. It's talking about that person that would come from David's line, the promised rescuer. And the New Testament makes the bold claim that that rescuer is Jesus. That he's Jesus. 
See, remember what I said earlier that religions give you rules to fix yourself? Christianity gives you a rescuer. Christianity gives you Jesus. The Bible is clear that we're dead, that we're unable to help ourselves, that we are stuck in our independence from God. And I get that you probably don't believe that. Okay? You still think that you need to treat God um, like a bear that's chasing you, right? And if a bear is chasing you, you know the story. You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the guy next to you. Like, that's the important thing. And you'll elbow him, trip him to get him down, because as long as the bear gets somebody, he's going to be happy. We think God is looking for good. And so we tend to ask ourselves, what's good enough? What's good enough? But God isn't looking for good. The reason he's not looking for good is because you and I can't be good enough. Because the standard is not the Yahoo sitting on your left or your right. And if you're like, I'm on that dude's left. Like, wait a minute. I, I know, we're all Yahoos. Like, the standard is not the person next to you. The standard is God. The standard is perfection. And so if God were looking for good, we would all be lost. But he isn't looking for good. He's looking for dependent. Because you can be very moral and very independent from God. That's what, that's what Stephen was talking about a few minutes ago, right? Jesus came to be what we couldn't. He met the standard. He lived perfectly. He loved God with all that he had, and he loved others as himself. And you and I failed that constantly. But he also bore our guilt on the cross. That's what that's all about. It's Jesus taking our place so that we can take his. That is why, friends, and I know that this bugs a lot of us, that is why Christianity is exclusive. Because it's not about good, it's about dependent. And to be dependent, you need someone to take your place. And Christianity is the only option of someone who God presents him to take our place so that we can take his. You can't fix your independence problem independently. You've got to trust Jesus. But if you do, you're joined to him and reconciled to God. Okay? So that's the call to fulfillment the call to flourishing. That leads to our final one, the call to forgiveness. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is a crazy call. Think about this. If you really tick somebody off, I mean, really tick them off, the last thing you want to do is to go to them. Right? Now imagine that the person you ticked off is the almighty creator and sustainer of all of the universe. The one who has the power to blink us out of existence. The one to whom we owe our life and our devotion. The one that we've justly earned the anger of. Are you going to go seek him? No, of course not. That's why this is crazy. It's the opposite of our normal reaction. And it has been the opposite of our normal reaction since we jacked the world up at first. Because normally what we think of is that if there is a God, that what we need to do is get ourselves straight first, right? Clean ourselves up, make things right, and then come to him. But here we are told simply to come to him while we can. And then we're given these two categories. These, another two categories, right? Before we had thirsty and poor. Now we're given wicked and unrighteous. Now those are churchy terms uh, or, or very misunderstood. So let me clarify them. A wicked person in the Bible is not the most evil person you can think of, right? That's what we think of, the wicked witch of the West who's riding around her broom, green face, and, and melts when you pour water on her. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. In the Bible, a wicked person is one who is living alienated from God, 
whose life is fundamentally about, listen close, looking out for number one. Making sure I get mine. Now some of you are like, well, kind of hits home, but that's not me. Like, I help people a lot. I'm sure you do. In fact, like, I, I bet you're, you're really helpful to a lot of folks, but my question would be, why? <laughs> why? Because you see, wickedness in the Bible is not just about what we do, it's about why we do it. If you help people because of wanting to, I don't know, ease your own guilt, like, I know I messed up this week, so I'm going to go do good things for people because that'll help me feel better about myself. Or, uh, or you do it to kind of make yourself look good. All the while kind of looking down your nose on the people you were helping. The Bible says that is selfish. That's sin. That's wickedness. It's using other people so that you can get yours. Right? So that's the wicked people. Unrighteousness in, is a failure to keep promises, especially to God. And so if the last option of those completely alienated from God, not even making an attempt, that's the irreligious crowd. Unrighteousness is the, is the frame of mind of the religious crowd. Right? These are the people who have an outward appearance of spirituality, but it's a show. Because they don't do anything uh, out of love for God or with joy in God, but out of fear of punishment or of, out of a desire of a good record with Him. So one is the irreligious person and the other is the religious person. But both are distant from God. The call to both is not to get their stuff straight. Do you see that? The call to both is just to come. Listen, this is the amazing thing. God is the offended one. He is the one whom we have railed against, sinned against. And God is calling you to come. Whether your brokenness looks messy or clean, irreligious or religious, whether you've been in church and, and, and struggled to come in here today, or you've been coming forever but just never really got why it's good news. And the reason for that is this last phrase in verse 7. It's about coming to compassion. Look there. He says, Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What this does is it presses against the two primary visions we have for God. Because some of us view God as either the guy who's standing up in the heavens with his thumb pointing down, waiting to squish us like a bug when we mess up, right? Which is why we hide, it's why we blame shift, because we don't want him to squish us. Others of us, though, have the vision of God like a cosmic Santa Claus, right? Who who doesn't really care what we do and is here to give us good things no matter what. But the image of God in the Bible is better than both of those. Because everything in this passage is leading right here. Why can God offer to quench our thirsts, to give us life, to be reconciled to him when we've done what we've done? Scripture says it's because of his compassion. God does what he does, not because of our actions, but because of his promises. And by his promise, though we messed everything up, he will make things right because he loves you. And when I say that, I don't mean like a sloppy love. I mean like a strong love. One that actually reckons with what we've done. One that sees you for who you are, sees me for who I am, says, I know what you've done, but I want to be with you enough that I'm willing to bear whatever cost. 
Can you imagine being loved by that? Loved like that? You see, the call at the beginning to buy without money isn't exactly true. It does cost. There is no such thing as a free lunch. It just doesn't cost us. It costs Jesus. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, gave his life and laid it down because he loved you. Look, it, if we don't get this, we don't get anything. You can't do anything to get God to love you. And praise God you can't. Because if you could do something to get God to love you, that means you could do something to stop Him from loving you. And all of us already would have. The beauty of Christianity is that God acts first. He loves first. He moves towards us. He comes to rescue us. And then we, when we see what is true, when we see who we are, who He is and what He offers, then we come. Out of His compassion, He calls us. And by the wooing of that compassion, we come. He freely gives. And we freely receive. That is why it is called grace. It's a great old hymn that says that if we linger, if we tarry, which is another way of saying wait, if we wait until we're better, will never come at all. But you don't have to wait because God has compassion on you and will abundantly pardon in Jesus. Jesus has received all of your betrayal. He's received all of the weight of that guilt. All that our betrayal deserves, my betrayal deserves, and now he offers you reconciliation with God. Because at the end of the day, the Christian gospel is about our gain at his cost. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your grace. And I thank you for that call. I thank you most of all for one word in that passage, compassion. Because Lord, it is hard for me, and I'm, my, my guess is it's hard for my friend, some of my friends here to believe that you have compassion on us. Not just that you, you uh, get tricked into... Um, forgiving us, but that you actually have compassion on us in our brokenness, in our lostness, in our wandering from you. You have compassion. You ask us, why are you spending all that you have on what can't satisfy you? Instead, come to me. There's nothing greater than that. So I praise you for that compassion. And I, I pray for all of us here, whether we are Christians or not, whether we've been coming to church forever or this is our first time ever in a worship service that you would open our eyes to that compassion and that in joy we would come to you again. Deliver us from those things that we think will satisfy us. They are cruel masters that are never, ever satisfied. No matter how much we give them. And instead, help us, rescue us, reconcile us to yourself. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.